0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger.
1: Hey, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. Welcome to episode 96. I am your host, Eric Rieger, joined by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's shaking?
2: What's going on? So here we are, episode 96. Holy cow, we're getting up there. New year, 2023, episode 96. So, And,
1: and this time we're going to stick to what we said, because
2: 95 we changed. So 95 was a slight turn on my end. I apologize, but it's it's important. It was important. It was, I was asked, what does a gastroenterologist <laughs> have in their pantry or kitchen? And as it turns out, I have uh, the Sam Harris, Sam Harris the neuroscientist slash philosopher slash meditator slash uh, the developer of the waking up app, which I'm a huge fan of. And that's what I have in my pantry. I need to go feed him. Remind me to go
1: feed him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sam here. will appreciate yeah. that for certain. <laughs> so this is episode 96 and we're going to Stick with what the layout was. And we were prompted in 95 and now 96 to begin to talk about what's in the pantry. How do you do fair food selection? And it's a big topic to tackle. So Ken and I had a discussion about what are some of the key things that people probably don't think about they probably should that could make a lasting impact on your health and your family's health.
2: Yeah, I think the overall. So in this podcast we're gonna cover about how do you make some simple swaps in your Well, we're going to call it pantry or in your kitchen so that when you're trying to start this new year and eat healthy, you may think you're eating healthy and you may be putting some crap oil in there. You may be using some condiments which are just filled with crap. And that's what we're going to get into today. So how do you make these easy swaps so that you ensure that the effort that you're making when you're trying to avoid processed foods, cook at home, you're not screwing it up by putting the wrong stuff in there? 100%.
1: Because, um, and we'll... We'll get to it later in here when we start talking about symptoms that may actually show if this is something that's affecting you or someone in your family. But if you've ever found yourself saying, I'm cooking these kinds of foods now and I still can't lose weight or I'm still agitated, believe it or not, you're doing the right things. You just may be using the wrong vehicles to cook with or buying the processed foods that look like that they're healthy, but Unfortunately, marketing is doing a great job of covering that shit up.
2: Look at episode 94, where we uncovered some really controversial stuff about our societies, our dietetic societies that are recommending things that ultimately are unhealthy for you. This is sort of an extension of that, but the flip side. We're going to try and offer, I'm going to play the the good cop, Eric will play the bad cop, and (laughs) I'm going to say what oils and condiments you should have. Eric's going to explain why you shouldn't use the more common ones that are found all the time everywhere in fact i just saw just for instance we'll we'll get to that in a second i want to i want to diverge before we start in that just one quick funny story yeah. can i can i go ahead and start this is like should. a personal thing anything going on in the uh rieger home or anything that i mean we need honestly to about?
1: since the last week we're moving full steam ahead college has started for both of the boys um baby's still not here yet can't wait but uh i mean we're, we're holding steady
2: so this time of year, for me, uh, the one thing that I want to talk about is at my gym. Oh yeah. So uh, January is always just super <laughs> crowded. Everybody makes this resolution. Anyway. And it's like one of those things you just get annoyed. you're like, duh, where'd all these people come from? Yeah and This is
1: the year of the lats, huh. <laughs> <laughs> the,
2: uh, so I was at, so I was at my gym. And I wanted to swing by on the way home. Normally I work out in the morning, but I couldn't work out because I had some other obligations. So I said, well, let me at least go get my sauna in. And my normal sauna spot, sweat house was full. Mm -hmm. Love that place, shout out to them, that's great. But they were full, so I'm like, oh, I'll just go to the gym and go to the sauna. I get in there and it's like a bouncer was needed like at the sauna, it was like so crowded. So I was able to sit down, little spot, Guy sits you know, next to me, kind of a little closer than normally you would be in the sauna, and I <laughs> drank my water. I'm gonna try and do a full 30 minutes in there, and I said, hey man, can you watch my spot here? I'm gonna run, and I'm sweating like crazy. So I got this big pool of sweat and the shape of my butt sitting in this in the wood there, and I come back in, and there's a nice young woman sitting like right next to my sweat pile. Mm. And he goes, I tried to tell her and she's just like, there's room. And I'm like, yeah, there is. And she's like, I didn't want to sweat in that. I, I didn't want to sit in that big puddle right there. And I was like, yeah, I don't blame you. So we're really comfortably close in a sauna. Nice. So just kind of visualize this. And the sauna is just full. It's a big sauna. It's just full with people. And so I start talking and I don't even know how this even started, but uh, she was discussing doing hot yoga and then I said, yeah, one time I went and did hot yoga at a place that they had carpet in the hot yoga, like hot yoga, like 104 degrees. it sounds terrible. No. And I went in there actually, <laughs> I went in there and it, I couldn't get over the odor. The odor was like bad feet and yeah. like, like like a hundred cats were just peeing in every corner. (laughs) So during the class, I was just sitting there just, and I couldn't stop just going, I'm not getting used to this. And the instructor's (laughs) like, okay, let's just be quiet over there. And I'm like, is anybody else noticing this? For gosh, sake. It smells like a diaper. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm telling my two mates this. <laughs> and uh, somehow that led to her going, "Oh, that's funny. That reminds me of an Instagram person that I follow that his whole channel is making fun of home listings and his favorite thing to make fun of is carpet in the bathroom. Oh yeah. And so then we start laughing about that. Which led to typically a gastroenterologist would bring this up. I'm like, hey, did you see that study out of Colorado State where they took lasers and they were flushing toilets and they showed the particulate and how high in the mist coming out of the toilet? It is frightening, which then led to um, her going, oh, yeah, I did see that. And then I said, oh, did you guys see the thing? About the toilet. I said, never mind, I'm talking too much about toilets. And then she goes, You can't talk enough about toilets. That's what I do. I sell aftermarket toilets. <laughs> aftermarket toilets. <laughs> <Yes>. Nice. <laughs> so I started laughing and I went, All right, here it is. And then this is what we discussed going forward. I will tell you what we discussed. An article that was just published. Um, you're hearing a lot about artificial intelligence, right? Yeah, There's all kinds of stuff in the news, oh, I know AI doing this and that and this and that. So a group out of Georgia Tech Research Institute, which by the way, I think Georgia Tech a pretty good engineering school. So these yeah. are some smart people that did this. Yeah, They developed a diarrhea detector using artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they developed a smart device to be installed that can accurately identify diarrhea 98% of the time. Okay. An AI device. But like,
1: was it to determine the cause of the diarrhea?
2: (laughs) So this is where it begins. So artificial intelligence now being used. The idea grew out of a conversation between these engineers about how COVID-19 can be monitored by analyzing sewage. So as the scientists started talking, the researchers said, hey, have we considered doing video analysis to look for diarrhea? Yeah, we did. We said no. (laughs) (laughs) So, rightly so... It's called scat porn. Yeah, some folks... It it was presumed that some folks are a little wary about having a camera pointed at their bum in the toilet, quote, unquote. Oh, that's weird. So, that particular researcher that had that that profound insight said, Uh that made me wonder if we could detect diarrhea using sound.
1: Yeah, you can.
2: (laughs) You sure can. So, the first step in this, obviously not one of the PhD people, but probably an undergrad. Uh, (laughs) They gathered 350 publicly available audio samples of bathroom sounds from YouTube and SoundSnap. Some clips had up to 10 hours of diarrhea noises. Okay. Yeah. So thank goodness somebody found that to be an interesting hobby. I'm going to record bathroom sounds and then make a montage of diarrhea sounds.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking of the long tail keyword you'd have to do so (laughs) someone could search to find that.
2: No. So basically they made some of the probably undergrads listen to quote unquote a good bit of diarrhea sounds. Quote, I'm not, this is not my words. Quote, there were definitely lots of fart sounds where we were like hmm, is that a fart or is that someone blowing in their elbow? And we had to (laughs) determine it.
1: Okay,
2: funny. (laughs) All right, so anyways, from a humor standpoint, that's hilarious, but then you start thinking, no, seriously, how does this AI determine the sound of defecation, urination, flatulence, diarrhea, um, all of this? And so they actually used some very sophisticated software to do this, and then they were able to actually determine if diarrhea is going on. Now, it makes sense if you live in, if there are in a country that has cholera outbreaks. so in theory- if most of the public toilets start having in an area diarrhea sounds, then it can alert officials to say, Oh, there's a cholera outbreak. So I just thought that was really interesting. More importantly, I thought it was interesting that this whole discussion took place in a sauna with a aftermarket toilet salesperson with about 30 other people in this sauna, just sweating profusely. And so I thought you'd get a kick out of that. That's happy new year.
1: Only because of the setting, I think that had someone shown up with diarrhea while you were in the sauna, it would have been like the worst setup ever.
2: That would have been that would not have needed AI to determine that. No, yeah, we we're
1: like no, yeah, it just smells like some horrific shit. <laughs> so, right now.
2: I think that's funny. So when we're talking about AI, everybody's seeing how AI can write code, how AI is going to become a robot and now Yeah. Yeah. So in they did speculate on what this could turn into into the future, which it could be like what foods you tolerate, what foods you don't tolerate. Yeah, in, I mean, I think it could
1: be the beneficial aspects of it of like personal data. I would hate for a public health official to use that to determine what a entire population should or shouldn't be doing. Yeah, let's not
2: even get into the fact. Let's extrapolate that even further where we have a social credit system where it's, you know, you're all of a sudden you're being called by your local officials yeah. and saying, listen you are having too much diarrhea, we've reviewed your credit buying pattern, and yeah. we're going to refuse you from buying ice cream anymore because we believe you have lactose the intolerance. The
1: velocity of your toilet rumbles is beyond the spectrum <laughs> yeah. of what's allowed here.
2: So it got me looking into this, and then I found out that there was an article on one of those electronic um, sites that at the most recent electronic consumer show in Las Vegas, Oh yeah, one of the things that several companies are getting into is installed urinary analysis in your toilets. So you sit down and it goes to your, it goes to your phone and it does a urine analysis while you're there. Just like real time. It says, this is your ketones. You are pregnant. You whatever. So it's apparently, apparently wearables and everything that's going on. It's kind of reached its limit, at least right now for the technology. It can check an EKG on your wrist. It can do all that stuff. Now it's a, Now let's move on to the next thing, which would be let's Bluetooth your urine to your phone.
1: Just side note, it probably deserves definitely its own show. Just be wary. If you're sharing all of that data, it may not be as cool as it feels to learn what you're ready-made ketones are at this point in time
2: 100 percent. like this all comes down to data that we're freely giving up yeah, you to don't
1: everybody. have to give all this stuff up just to find out you were doing fine before that
2: <laughs> it's here's the funny part about that you can take you can go to the store and buy ketone strips that tell your ph tell your sugar tell everything you just dip it in urine which is what, yeah. which is what i did as as a first year med student you dip it in and you come back and you just go You have diabetes and you're pregnant and whatever, and you can do it with one little dip. Well, now they're having these devices that are there. So it's interesting.
1: And and those strips did not require Wi-Fi at all.
2: No, they did not. So next time you're in a sauna, strike up a conversation about (laughs) toilets (laughs) to the person
1: next to you. That's it. That sounds awesome. Fortunately, there shouldn't be diarrhea in your pantry. So (laughs) there's a good-
2: Yes. Oh, this is a good segue. We are going to talk about stuff so that you do not develop diarrhea yeah. when you cook at home. Yeah. So this all started because I was contacted by a uh, well plus good, uh, a digital magazine and they wanted, um, they're going to write a big article on this. So they wanted my advice on five gut friendly items. A gastroenterologist always has available in their pantry. And considering that I believe all health begins and ends in the gut And I tell my patients what I believe, and my patients tend to struggle to find healthy ways to eat. I started thinking about that. Really, the easiest way to do this is to avoid processed foods, cook at home. But then cooking at home, I started thinking about how easy it is to have bad items at home when you're thinking you're doing a good job. Uh So that's
1: what this episode's about. I love it. So... I think you kind of set the template that we'll begin with some good oils and then maybe get into why we need to avoid the bad oils. Yeah. Okay. So
2: I think we should talk oils first because that's the most common thing. All right. So let's talk some gut friendly oils. So, gut friendly oils are those that are easy to digest, don't cause irritation or inflammation in the digestive system and systemically. So, my five gut friendly oils and I definitely have at least three of these always on hand, a high quality olive oil. This is well known to everyone, but the reason why olive oil is good for you is it's rich in monosaturated fats, which has been shown to be heart healthy. And olive oil contains my favorite word, polyphenols. And we know that polyphenols have anti-inflammatory properties, anti-aging properties. So olive oil is the oil that is primarily used whenever you're cooking in a Mediterranean style. Mm -hmm. So olive oil. Number two, avocado oil, which is also rich in monosaturated fats and polyphenols, but avocado oil has a higher smoke point than other oils. And while we're on that topic, coconut oil also is rich in fatty acids and vitamins which may make it beneficial for skin health and a few other things. And coconut oil may actually help with weight management, but it also has a higher smoke point. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk smoke point really quick.
1: Yeah, smoke point. So if you have uh, an oil that you want to use and really should just determine how hot you need it to get to make certain that the healthy oil matches up with what you need. So the best thing to do, is let's say you have a high heat, the great thing is one of the overall best oils for anything in all types of cooking is avocado oil. If you breach the smoke point, apparently you can, I think that you can, some people even call it blue smoke, but you can see that the oil begins to deteriorate uh, more rapidly. And essentially the fats that keep an oil together are stable up to a certain point. And the stability is important. So too much of the high heat uh, can make the oil become dangerous and exert toxins. And we'll get into it in a moment with some of the more or uh, oils that you should avoid. But the toxins that oils can provide, once they are too heavy uh, heated or they've been overly processed, is that they will become highly oxidative. And that actually is what leads to disease from these oils. That's really where the danger comes from. So you just simply don't want to go beyond an, a, a, uh, an oil's cook smoke point. Avocado oil, for instance, goes up to 520 degrees Fahrenheit, which is plenty hot for pretty much everything. So where are we at with olive oil? So avocado oil is at 520 degrees Fahrenheit. I'll just do all in Fahrenheit, because I think most of our viewers can relate to that more. Um, but uh, peanut oil, when it's unrefined, is good for 450. Uh, I'm going to skip some of the crap oils. Um, 430 for almond oil. Um, olive oil, still good up to 410. And actually, the more extra virgin it is, the more stable it's going to be. So there's- The more stable at a higher heat? Yes, correct. Okay. So I'm cooking with olive oil.
2: Once it starts smoking, have I breached the smoke point and now
1: now I'm potentially not making olive oil as healthy? Not always, but it's definitely worth checking at that point in time to see if you've breached where you're at. That's a good question. Some- I believe, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but some rise is is normal, but once you get to the uh, instability part, I mean, I think that the smoke, it, it almost looks like it's about to burn. Okay. Not necessarily catch fire, but burn. The smoke point is important. Okay. Um, let's see, some other, uh, your nut oils are always good, macadamia nuts at uh, 300. Some of those, um, butter, butter is great to cook in, but not at a high temp. It's actually up to 300 degrees. So I think
2: I overheat a. I think I I use too much heat when I cook. So I'm thinking about this, and I've I've made olive oil smoke. I've certainly made butter smoke.
1: I may have just inverted something. I saw extra virgin here and then virgin oil up here. Actually, the more virgin that it is, the lower the smoke point. I oh. misspoke. So let's just go ahead and correct that now. I think I inverted. So
2: if you're spending the money for extra virgin olive oil, which has more anti-inflammatory properties and more polyphenols lower smoke point you can be destroying it by heating
1: it too much. that's correct i sorry i didn't mean to invert that but yeah that's correct don't
2: waste your money if you're going to just burn everything (laughs) yeah
1: don't do that but it's 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 worth knowing and most meats even though uh some of these temperatures may not be technically ideal for what it is that you want to do right away the truth is you just need to know what the cook point is that you want for the center of the meat it may just simply take longer you'll still get to what you wanna get to over time. So yeah, I agree. All right, so we covered olive oil, avocado, coconut,
2: and another really good one is flaxseed oil. And the reason why is because this has a really rich source of alpha linoleic acid, ALA. And this is an essential omega-3 fatty acid. Flaxseed oil may actually help improve digestive health by increasing the production of mucus in the intestines, which can actually help protect against irritation and inflammation. And chia seed oil is another one which is rich in omega-3, omega-6, and other fatty acids. So chia seed has anti-inflammatory properties and may actually help reduce inflammation as well in the gut.
1: Something to add to chia seed, flaxseed oil. Those are uh, great oils, and they're, they're really, really good if you're going to make a, uh, a dressing or, or something else like that at home. Oh. They're actually known as no-heat oils. Oh. You, you only moderately heat them up whatsoever. So, yeah, they're, they're very, very good. Uh, as far as oils go, but that sounds awesome. I'm gonna. So
2: this is this is great because. If you're going to make um, salads, and flaxseed and chia are absolutely phenomenal for your gut health. Yeah. And I'm actually not using a whole lot of either one of those. Correct. I typically just you know bulk up on olive oil and avocado oil personally.
1: Yeah. yeah well, and, well, all of up. those great. It just really comes down to heat tolerance of the oil itself. Yeah.
2: But if you've got this is a fantastic way for me to tell my patients that have digestive issues, sure. specifically inflammatory bowel disease. Y'all should consider switching to flaxseed and chia seed when you're making a salad. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So my five gut-friendly oils: olive oil, avocado, coconut oil, flaxseed oil, chia seed oil. The good guys. Now, who are who are the bad guys in this group?
1: So there's obviously there's a little bit of history here. The the, the wild thing is, uh, and, and in addition to the oils, I'm just going to throw this in there. Butter is still is still stable. Is still a great fat to cook with to use. Butter is not on the bad list whatsoever. And it, since we talk about the different things, the different oils, we're just talking about different kinds of fats. Butter, when heated, obviously it turns into an oil. They're all somewhat related, and it's it's fine. Um, it just have, you just really have to adhere to uh, smoke points and heat points and different things like that so that you don't denature and then make them toxic.
2: Just to clarify one thing, butter is not margarine. So like
1: Butter is not margin. We're going to get there.
2: Okay, good, good, you're good, good. We're definitely going to get there. Because mom would always do that. She's like, bring the butter, and I'd go grab it. And I'm like, this is not butter.
1: Oh, no. no, it's not. It is <laughs> definitely not butter, and in fact, it's terrible for you. Um, so, to set the stage on why we have to go through what you need to be cognizant of, let's talk about what we're going to watch out for, and then how it affects us, how people have covered it up, and then maybe what you may be feeling to see if it's affected you or not. Does it make sense? Makes sense. Let's okay. do this. So the issue with bad oils that are cooked and in processed food, let's just list them off. They are corn, canola, also known as rapeseed oil. Rapeseed oil. <laughs> comes from the rapeseed plant. And it's everywhere right now. You'll find canola oil in everything. Um cottonseed oil, soy or soybean oil, sunflower, Safflower and sunflower and safflower. I don't even know what a safflower is. I don't know what a safflower uh, is. Grape seed and rice bran. Um, palm oil uh, is almost always refined, uh, almost always refined, and that you could add there as well. So that's nine different oils: corn, canola, cottonseed, soy, sunflower, safflower, grape seed, rice bran, and palm. These are all of the various oils that really you just need. To avoid, and uh, even some of, the, some of these have been hidden in um, other foods as emulsifiers as lecithins, and we'll get to that in a moment. But why? Why are these things bad? Well, they all contain high volumes of PUFAs, which stands for polyunsaturated fatty acids. The reason why those are poor or bad for you is, number one, they're highly processed, and what makes highly processed uh, PUFA bad for you is that they are easily oxidated. So, when you look at someone's blood profile, Ken, when we were studying, what was it that someone told us uh, was an indication that we should look for, especially 20 years ago, for somebody who might have coronary vessel disease? We're looking at- I mean, getting cholesterol? Cholesterols, right. And what's unfortunate is that prior to a big change, we'll get to that here in a moment, because if you watched episode 94 and you saw us talk about the Dietetics Association- <laughs> about to talk about a different association i told you it wasn't just that one but prior to that no one really considered that people's cholesterol was in disarray it really wasn't a problem nobody was sitting there saying well they had this heart attack in fact heart attacks at that point in time were very 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 low and it usually came from age and exposure as an oxidative stress issue not just someone's diet because we didn't have all of these different PUFAs in our diets. So what am I I getting at here? So knowing and understanding cholesterol will help us a little bit as we try to figure out, well, why have PUFAs snuck into our food supply? And why is it that they're being crammed into our food supply? The American Heart Association or the Association of Cardiologists in the early 1900s was a member of only funded organization, member only funded. Physicians who wanted the most up to date records, research, etc., would pay, and they use that money to fund research and then share uh, peer reviewed articles and everything else like that. And then suddenly, someone determined, I believe, is either in the late 30s or in the 40s, that we could have a lot more money if we had corporate sponsorship. Mm. So, wouldn't you know, the very first. Large-scale corporate sponsor of the American Heart Association was Procter & Gamble. And at that point in time, Procter & Gamble had a product. It was hydrogenated oils that uh, basically was margarine. Oh, super. So there's a, there's a particular graph that shows butter consumption. And I know that you, if you're only listening, and I know that most of you do, just think of butter consumption as a peak on a graph. And obesity and heart disease are down low on that graph. When margarine was introduced, the consumption of butter went down, hydrogenated oil, vegetable oil, began to rise. And there's an intersection there where butter goes down, heart disease, and soon discovered diabetes, type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes, increase And they correlate with a decrease in having natural fats such as butter and an increase of the consumption of vegetable oil or hydrogenated vegetable oil, margarine. So, uh, oh, and that's, that's another oil that was left off of here. Sorry about that. Anywhere you see vegetable oil is also uh, an oil that you should avoid. These PUFAs that are in these oils and every single one that we listed here become oxidative. So, um what the, the the sorry if I'm stumbling here, but the issue with cholesterol is that we've been billed that all cholesterol needs to be below a certain number, and then HDL is really the only quote unquote good cholesterol. Well, the truth is all of our cholesterols actually serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. They actually become far more dangerous is if they have been uh, oxidized. So our cholesterols are little lipoproteins, right? We need chylomicrons because chylomicrons bind to the fat and they carry them away from our intestines. If we didn't, then all that fat would build up in just our intestines as we're eating and we would die. We wouldn't last very long. Then you have VLDL. Now, VLDL gets vilified all of the time.
2: Yeah, that's that's the one everyone first looks at.
1: Very low-density lipoprotein. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, it was. When I was in training, that didn't even exist. Correct. It was HDL and LDL. That was it. Good, bad. Good. That was how I was and,
1: and, and good, bad is is a little crazy. We, we you're gonna have to kind of bend your mindset around cholesterol to understand where I'm coming from. VLDL actually serves a great purpose, especially when you exercise. VLDL's job, because it's so small, is to help keep the liver clean and unclogged you know because that's where you store glycogen, right? you know you need these stores for your body for energy. So whenever you exercise you actually need VLDL to help keep the liver from developing portal hypertension and having different type of metabolic episodes that it could originate within the liver itself. So VLDL serves a purpose. LDL, your capillary beds, your capillary beds need LDL. LDL itself transports cholesterol as well as proteins to, various points throughout your body and there's little chemical messengers at all of the different cells that may need a cholesterol or they may need a protein that's how your body sends things throughout it uh throughout all of its systems etc to feed nourish deliver to build other hormones you need cholesterol for testosterone for estrogen you need it to build vitamin d your immune system depends upon cholesterol
2: yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think that there is, this is a super complex topic Yeah. because clearly there's some data. And If you talk to cardiologists, they'll be like, this is insane because we have shown when you reach a certain threshold too high of anything, we're talking about homeostasis here. We're talking about in the right range. Two people that I think have done a, actually one person that has spoken about this in some of the clearest ways is Chris Cresser. Definitely. He does a great job. Of explaining that cholesterol, he de-demonizes cholesterol and shows why you actually need cholesterol, which is why your diet actually you need um, to take in foods that have cholesterol. Eggs are not bad, for instance, and butter is not bad, but when you start um, creating inflammation with the VLDL floating mm-hmm. around and that kind of thing, and so that's it's a it's a complex topic, but yes, exactly. Don't.
1: All, all of these different various types of cholesterol, all I'm trying to establish is that they are all necessary. So what makes them bad? It's not an arbitrary number. It really is not true. an arbitrary number. Um, the, uh, even in the last 15 years, a lot of medical science has at least migrated over to, well, you need at least to mind the complementary ratio. And that in and of itself is somewhat true. You definitely want a good ratio. But what's more important than any of that stuff is to make certain that your diet is not contributing to a highly oxidative state so that these lipoproteins don't become toxic.
2: Yes, why is that never discussed other than your cholesterol's
1: high, here's a drug? 100%. So the, it's a, that's a great question. Normally, the people who suffered younger-aged strokes and heart attacks prior to to butter being supplanted by uh, hydrogenated vegetable oil, et cetera. They were usually sedentary or had a different debilitation that didn't allow them to do different things. And they, they, they may have had somewhat of a poor diet or just malnourished, but that's usually what set them up for that type of cardiovascular incident. So since then, we've seen an increase in even skinny people who have experienced heart attack and stroke, and they may have been they've been of good weight. Their cholesterol numbers may have been fine. So, what in the world could have led to that? Yeah. It's it's highly oxidated cholesterol lipoproteins. Mm. And then you go and you start digging at what type of diet did they happen to adhere to. Well, they they ate uh, dishes that included lots of fruits and vegetables. They ate many many salads. But then you have to dig a little bit deeper, and then you begin to see that the inventory was. Well they did use a dressing and the dressing may have said healthy on it but that dressing may have had all different types of blended oils and if you think that your dressing doesn't have these in here I I promise you you there's a better there's a better than zero chance that you've that almost every dressing that you could pick up out of a regular grocery store has got one of these oils that we've listed is its main constituent to to give it its bulk.
2: It's funny you say that because I saw a uh, health influencer on Instagram and he was actually talking about the fact that he purposely would walk from his work, not eat the work cafeteria, but he would go to the Whole Foods across the street, uh-huh. and he would order food from the from from the hot bar mm-hmm. that was there until somebody pointed out, have you looked at how they cook the food? Yep. And then he said, holy cow, they're using these highly inflammatory oils to make the food at Whole Foods sitting there. And here I am making the effort to go across the street. Yeah. And it's still happening. That's how insidious this is.
1: So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So how, how does how does someone avoid this, this particular situation? How do you know what it is that you're not – well, if, if you're going to cook for yourself, like you mentioned earlier, it's probably the easiest and safest way because you can get fresh fruits and vegetables – And you can come home, and if you wish to use an oil, you just cook with the right kind of oil. And for the most part, you're going to be in really, really good shape. I mean, you don't have near as much to worry about in the guesswork, right? Then the issue becomes, if you happen to buy a processed or a packaged food, you're going to just simply have to read the label that shows the ingredients, not the front that says things like, made with olive oil. Okay, something may say, made with olive oil. Yes, it's made with olive oil and probably to some other oils that yeah. are on there. Yeah. You and unfortunately, you can't trust the non-GMO or the organic label solely whenever you happen to buy a packaged food anymore. They allow, for instance, canola oil to be listed as an organic canola oil if it happens to be organically grown. Dude, when I was doing my homework
2: for this interview, yeah. I found several articles that discussed healthy oils, and freaking canola made the list
1: so many times. It makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. It's inflammatory as hell.
2: And it's you're just like, and
1: these are huge
2: websites. This is like WebMD bullshit.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I, it sucks. This part, th- what I'm going to say next, really sucks, but it's just the truth. If they're being endorsed by large food companies or pharmaceutical companies then you have to be really, really wary of what it is that they're endorsing. It's just the way that it is. Because those are the partners that benefit from you doing this shit, making you feel like that you are making healthy decisions and they're just pumping you full of things that are going to ultimately make you a customer in a far more lucrative way. Either buying their drugs or buying their therapies. Well, you stop and think about that. Episode
2: 94, when we talked about it, that Dietetic Association is heavily funded by three main industries. Big Agra, Big Food, Big Pharma. Yeah.
1: They all go together. They do. So here, here's, here's an example uh, of where I'm a little let down that it snuck into the lineup, but I've noticed that one of the better... Um, stewards of of health has prevented it from happening. You and I both like Dave's Killer Bread. Yeah. Love Dave's Killer Bread. Love it. Almost every line that they have would not have a single one of these oils. The only one, though, that I've noticed that does is, and it's hardly available, but Dave's um, 100% wheat bread has canola oil in it. Really? Yeah, and it's kind of weird. However, if you go to Natural Grocers, they feature every one of Dave's Killer Bread products, except for you will not find the wheat in there because of the canola oil. Wow. What's strange, though, is that you'll find some of those oils on very, very select few products. And I think it has to do with a rationale, and it's probably an appropriate approach that our bodies could... You're not supposed to have gasoline in your body. But if you've got a little bit on your finger whenever you're pumping up gas or you've cut the grass and you get a little gas, you inhale it. You're You're
2: thirsty and you just (laughs) just suck a little out of it. Yeah, you just
1: down a little gasoline. You're going to survive. Your body can overcome minimal exposure. So I do know that uh, on the chip aisle at Natural Grocers, they still will have – uh, like uh, the tostadas, the chips. Every now and then will have you know something that's cooked in sunflower oil or something else like that. I think that the rationale there is the siete do that siete doesn't. Mm. They are all coconut oil or nice. avocado oil. Yeah, siete is a little bit different. Um, they're definitely a cut above uh, on on the way that they produce pretty much everything. So, natural grocer's of course will promote this the sietes and those that are very similar, but they do. Because I think there's just a limited selection of chastatas, sure. and it's probably not going to constitute the bulk of what someone happens to eat that day, or it certainly shouldn't. I think that that's how they rationalize that. But if you look at many of the other products within natural grocers, they simply don't have anything that features anything with those 9 or 10 oils that I listed earlier. So there's a reason those PUFAs become highly oxidative. They will damage your cell, uh, your cell integrity. They make your immune system far less available. And what's kind of crazy is that they've shown the link between high consumptions of PUFAs, which also equals lots of omega-6 uh, fatty acids, uh, that that correlates to, and I'm, we won't go through the mechanism here, but it correlates to someone craving more sugar. Really? Yeah. It's pretty Having wild.
2: Omega six. On one of the episodes we did, we discussed how the typical Western diet, the ratio of omega three to omega six. I don't remember what the number was, but when you compare it to Japan, it's like ten times three to
1: six. It's ex- well, you're beating down the right path. So the normal uh, consumption of what we should have for uh, polyunsaturated fats in our diet shouldn't be more than about four percent. The typical American diet is 10 to 20% per day, mm. 10 to 20%. So what that, not only is that toxic as you take it in, but your fat stores hang on to that. So let's say that you decide, I'm going to shed all this. I'm not going to do this anymore. That's a step in the right direction. Your body is probably going to fight inflammation for a little bit time longer because effectively, the fat stores um. now have to push those poofs out they've got to be metabolized so there's going to be a lot of times when people switch i'm
2: sorry i just visualized a cartoon of a fat cell trying to push a poofa out <laughs> I
1: don't know what that would look like but it can't be good no, no, no. <laughs> all right so fat cells it, it, pushing poofas out it sounds like it needs that microphone that goes in a toilet <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right sorry to interrupt but no no
1: that's a, that's a that's a good it's <laughs> a good visual, a <laughs> good one. Uh, however, so these these highly inflammatory uh, oils only make your uh, lipoproteins, your cholesterol's work less efficiently and become dangerous, which leads to coronary vessel disease, which could possibly lead to you craving more refined sugars, which is so bizarre, but it's exactly what it does. And so you're you're craving all the things that are lower in nutrition density basically forming more cortisol release while denying your body's ability to fight inflammation. It's a bad cycle. And your mindset is, I'm eating healthy shit. Why am I not losing weight? Why do I not feel good? So, God, I hear that so much from patients. Not only that. Not only that. So you may be saying, no, no. I've I've gone through my pantry. I don't have any of those things. And even those that I do... These diseases don't affect me, but here's some small things to consider weight. Well, I'm eating well, and these are my calorie counts. Almost everybody counts calories, but these are my calorie counts. And I'm still not losing weight though. And I don't know what it is. What if I was able to show you that weight itself is one of the hardest things to shed whenever you have an inflamed body? Now we've talked about that before. So let's move on to some other things we probably haven't talked a lot about about what would be inflamed, okay. large scale seasonal rhinitis or seasonal allergies, migraines. Uh, you certainly have um, uh, uh, diseases that mimic Kawasaki's disease, red spots. All of those are tied back to metabolic disease. So what is it? Why why would why would a large pharmaceutical company or food company that would be associated with a pharmaceutical company have to gain from something like that. So I'm going to throw out just some scenarios real quick. All right.
2: So this is going to be word association. Yeah. All right. So so the first time we're doing word association game on the Get Check Project.
1: I don't know if it's the first, but it's the first one today. Word association? I don't know. But it just seems like probably someone's going to send us a clip like they have in the past and say, you already done that shit before. So (laughs) anyway, so if I were, to, to just walk into a typical doctor's office, okay. and I wanted to solve my chronic allergies, what would they give me? Ooh, you're
2: going to get a nasal steroid oh. and an antihistamine, Claritin or Xerotec. That's exactly right. One of those.
1: So if I had chronic
2: asthma, Ken? Oh, you're going to get an inhaler, Flovent or Albuterol.
1: There we go. What if I just, I, I've, I haven't eaten anything, but my blood sugar is still high.
2: Uh, so I'm going to say you're pre-diabetic or you are diabetic and you're going to walk out with some metformin. Yes. Or a host of other medications.
1: Um, we discovered that you've got some arterial fat and we need to do something about it. What can we do about that?
2: Oh, arterial fat. You mean like coronary artery disease? Yeah. Uh-oh. You're going on a statin and you may be going into the cath lab.
1: Yeah. So uh, what about uh, erectile dysfunction?
2: Oh. Oh. <laughs> it's just viagra or sildenafil or whatever it is the um, the the, whatever the host of all the drugs that people use the erectile dysfunction drugs
1: yeah maybe new girlfriend too anyway (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that
2: that would be priceless to walk out with the script (laughs) that says new girlfriend go home and be like a doctor says it's you
1: (laughs) yeah disregard um blood clots
2: Oh, well, you're going to be put on an anticoagulant.
1: Yeah, so it could be Coumadin or Zarelto, Zarelto, all
2: of them, Brilanta, all of them.
1: Every single one of those is a solution for a metabolic disease that happens to be a pharmaceutical or a medical intervention that was brought on by long-term chronic inflammation. If these are things that describe your habits or I shouldn't even say habits, what your what your pharmacy cabinet happens to look like? And maybe you feel like it's too late for you. Maybe you're older, but you've got kids or you've got grandkids start teaching them that they don't necessarily have to end up in that particular hole while maybe you or those that you love begin to make those changes so that you're not living in a world of inflammation. But every single one of those is born from long-term inflammation. Yeah. Every single one of them. Um,
2: I had this image of a grandparent suddenly changing the whole diet and they giving it to the grandchild. Yeah. They're like, grandpa, why am I eating this? Grandpa's trying to push these poofers out of themselves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't, they, they will be highly confused if they do that. <laughs> uh, so some other things to consider are restaurants. You never know what your restaurants are cooking with. So you might as well ask. They will begin to change if the clientele changes. It was just 30 years ago that everywhere you went still had a smoking section.
2: I Mm -hmm. totally agree, and not to interrupt you here, but this is a shout-out to my friend Chris, who owns Best Tie that we've been eating at forever, Mm -hmm. and I am currently, as I speak, wearing a Dexcom continuous glucose monitor, and I recommend everybody try this. You'll do it. So right now, as I'm talking um, in relation to my... Dexcom meter to what my blood sugar is. My blood sugar currently is 80, which is good. While I'm doing this, now I learned the hard way that when I, I love Thai food and I've eaten Thai food, and my blood sugar spikes way up. So now, Chris, the owner of Best Thai, I discussed this with him and he said, just order everything low sugar. And now they now they make all, whenever I eat there, we can still eat there and my blood sugar doesn't rise like it used to. I'm just saying this because when you, when you go to restaurants, you don't see, that the, the standard way that they're cooking is the way that the American people, yep, you're running a business. Yeah. Now, yes, the food tastes a little bit more bland, but not. I had no idea it was doing that to my blood sugar. You know, I thought I'd, I was loving it. So anyways, that's just a, a quick shout out that when you go to a restaurant, and if you say, hey, look, by the way, I'd like this low sugar. I'd like to, you know, what oils are you using? Mm-hmm. And if they can answer, and they'd be like, would you like us? We, we make to order. Would you like us to change it? That'd be pretty ballsy. I mean, that's awesome if the restaurants would do that.
1: The more in demand that it happens, then suddenly these high-priced, healthier oils, will be, they'll go down in price. I mean, they, they will because it becomes more ubiquitous. It doesn't have to be a specialty order thing. Yeah. And if more restaurants begin to transition over to it, then that's how you can... I mean, you, you, honestly, you probably won't eat nearly as much if you happen to have a better diet that can—it's constituted with the oils that aren't causing inflammation.
2: The irony of that, that I didn't realize that a higher level of omega-6-3 to makes you kind of crave sugar. It does. That is fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And so other places that these oils can hide is in emulsifiers. Mm. So the place that happens most often with emulsifiers, and what does an emulsifier do? It allows things that are traditionally oil and water based to hold consistency. If you make dressing at home, you almost always see it separate right but if you see a dressing on the shelf it all kind of looks uniform uh chocolate chocolate's another thing where you have sugar and you have cocoa butter together and they're trying to keep them all distributed mm-hmm. the same so an emulsifier is is set there to do that now there are emulsifiers like from egg lecithin which is what's in propofol to hold it together that allow um, those Uh, constituents to stay together and egg is completely fine however you may oftentimes find soy lecithin being uh i don't know used a little bit more ubiquitously it's yeah that's everywhere it's it definitely in in many of the shelf stored dressings and you'll also find it oftentimes in chocolates the weird thing about chocolate If you're not eating too, too much chocolate, the constitution of soy lecithin in chocolate usually doesn't uh, constitute even 1% of the weight. So it's really, 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 really low, which is good. If you happen to be a dark chocolate eater, which is lower in sugar, it actually requires even less of the lecithin as an emulsifier. So you could kind of gauge that if you're a fan of dark chocolate, you're probably somewhat in the clear. You can still find many, many chocolates that are higher end that don't use any of these types of, uh, danger, uh, oils as a lecithin to, uh, to do it with, but your dressings, it's probably better just to learn how to make a dressing at home. Number one, it'd be healthier for you. Number two, it'd be fresher. And number three, you just would be able to avoid a lot of the inflammatory cascade that you'll ultimately get eating these kinds of, uh, these oils.
2: When you were talking about that, I had to look up really quick that uh, on the Huberman lab, he was talking about these emulsifiers affecting the nerves, the superficial nerves oh, yeah. in the intestine. Uh-huh. And it blunts the response to both ghrelin. And then he referred to something as a neuropod cell, which I never learned about. And so I had to look it up really quick. Neuropod cells Um, provide the foundation for the gut to transduce sensory signals from the intestine to the brain through fast neurotransmission onto neurons, including those of the vagus nerve. And I remember he discussed specifically that the emulsifiers mess with these neuropod cells so that the signal transduction actually craves more sugar as opposed to downregulating it. So it does something to affect those. We'll have to get more into that. Um, but this is these emulsifiers damage the superficial nerves and mess with it. So a lot of times if you're craving, you think you're eating healthy. You're like, I just had a salad for lunch. And you're like, man, I could really use some cookies or something. Yeah, it's It could be because there's damage being caused to the superficial nerves and possibly related to these neuropod cells.
1: 100%. And if you think about it, if a lot of those same emulsifiers and oils are used in the prepackaged cookies that you have. And so you think you have satiety from eating that cookie and it's not going to be that much longer later that you're going to end up craving more. And if you're marketing cookies and if you're marketing dressing, what's the best way to get somebody to come back and crave your shit more is to keep putting in things that are inflammatory and make them want to keep eating, never realizing that they're feeding the monster over and over and over again. It just, it's a vicious cycle. And the whole time you feel like, man, I can't believe that I can't believe I just polished off that whole Package of whatever it happens to be,
2: you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the guy. If we hired the guy that did that diary, the, the AI diarrhea study, said, let's put cameras in the toilets. <laughs> He's the same guy that if we hired at Atron Teal, he'd be like, let's put nicotine and emulsifiers in the Atron Teal. They'll buy more. They will definitely buy a That's lot exactly more. That's exactly what big food does. Yeah. That's exactly what they do.
1: It, it, it's what, unfortunately, some of the people that we've met, uh, in our area, we won't name the company, but the food engineers, that's what they get paid to do.
2: That's exactly. Really smart people get paid to manipulate these kind of things. So, Could you imagine being so smart that you understand the physiology of a Neuropod cell and said, if we added this, we can blunt the response and people want more of it. You would look like a genius.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You definitely. An evil be. genius, but yeah. a genius. Well, I mean, certainly if, if you were, if you needed to sell shares in your company, they would, that's who they want. Yeah. So, Hey, this last thing I want to uh, talk about is something called uh, Pufa-driven diabetes. So the link between, I was kind of building to this point, but the link between craving the sugar, craving the carbs, and what ultimately is now Pufa-driven diabetes. Hmm. So there's a graph that I took from uh, drkate.com that I'm going to reference here. And that, actually, she has a lot of information on uh, on oils. I highly recommend Kate, which is D-R-C-A-T-E.com. Um, Anyhow, she has a graph where in 1909 the level of seed oils driving diabetes was non-existent. And then as they begin to experiment with hydrogenated oils, it climbs not even to about 2% before 1920. Over time, all the way until you get to about 1970, oh, I'm sorry, at 1960. In 1960, PUFA-driven diabetes now outpaces carbs, margarine, and what is this? Oh, butter and lard are very, 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 very low. Um, but anyhow, you already got carbs and margarine, which everyone associated with uh, with issues of diabetes and inflammation already. And now your seed oils have skyrocketed to where – PFUA-driven diabetes, by the time we have reached the year 2020, which is just three years ago, is over 99%. This is source. nuts.
2: This graph is nuts. The 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 steepness of this curve, starting in
1: what? 19
2: Like in the early 1990s? Yeah. Mid-1990s, just absolutely skyrockets.
1: Well, if you've noticed, it, those oils weren't in everything until the last 30 years. That was the transition. It's just where they began to force in these seed oils. And what's what's wild is we don't have time to go into it on this particular show. But these seed oils accompanied by the enzyme-changed sugars, such as high fructose corn syrup, Mm. is like a perfect combination for craving. And that perfect combination for craving yields more sales which is really what this is all
2: about. Everything's about that.
1: Um, the wild thing that I saw here in one of her notes is that type 2 diabetes was not even first observed in medical practice until the year 1938 and wasn't even tracked until 1958. So it's right at 1960 when you begin to see this ellipse past all of the other sources of diabetes. This is when they recognized that it was a problem. Look here, back in the 40s, they still weren't certain if it was causing much of anything because its consumption was so low. But even though that consumption was so low, it still was making a blip where people were like, I think it might be contributing a little bit to our, our diabetic problem. I wanna
2: point something else out on this graph that I'm looking at is that there is a sharp rise in diabetes and pre-diabetes in the year, well, the mid 1990s yep. and 2000. But what's fascinating is the amount of carbs that we ate from 1909 to now is exactly the same. We're blaming carbs for everything. The carbs in 1909 was the same as it is now.
1: What else? What else can you say on here? The amount of natural uh, uh, monounsaturated fats like butter and lard actually went down while disease went up. Shit! People, Look at this. People ate less butter and got sicker. That's that's crazy.
2: This is ridiculous. Like you just looking at this tells a dramatic story.
1: Yeah. Wow. Don't. So some some key takeaways. Don't eat margarine. Don't eat vegetable oil, rice bran oil, grapeseed oil, safflower, sunflower, soy, cottonseed, canola, or corn oil. Just avoid them. And uh, it, it's going to be a little bit of a transition, but almost every food product, if you if you are attached to a processed food, I promise you, There's a compliment out there that doesn't have that in it. You just have to shop and you have to read labels and you have to demand that the place where you shop for groceries carries what it is that you're after. If there's enough demand, they'll carry it. Well, let's,
2: let's jump back in and close this out quickly with um, some options like you're talking about. Yeah. So another big thing is healthy condiments. So many people don't realize that the common condiments that you're using all the time may be hiding really unhealthy ingredients. Surprise, surprise, like high fructose corn syrup and unhealthy oils. So you can actually make some healthy swaps on this you may think you're cooking something very healthy and then you put some condiments on there and you've just made it remarkably unhealthy. Yep. So here's some ones that I use pretty liberally, mustard. Now this condiment is low in calories and fat and it contains antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds. I use a lot of mustard and uh, mustard is fermented I believe. So. Yeah uh salsa you make your own salsa now you store by it read that label look at it but this condiment is made from a variety of vegetables as we all know including tomatoes onions and peppers these are all rich in nutrients and salsa can be a really good source of vitamins and minerals especially made with fresh ingredients huge fan of hummus you like hummus also yeah now breaks my soul to say this We're a big hummus family and you go buy prepackaged hummus, Mm -hmm. you're going to find some, some bad oils in there usually. Mm -hmm. So it's not that hard to make your own hummus is what it comes down to. This condiment is made from chickpeas, which are a really good source of protein, fiber, and other nutrients. And hummus is also rich in healthy fats and can be a really good source of iron and other minerals. Guacamole. Condiment is made from avocados. Uh, Max Lugavere puts avocados at the top of his genius food list. We need those good fats. And these are a good source of healthy fats and nutrients. And it has a lot of potassium and vitamin
1: E in it. Just a side note, there are healthy prepackaged uh, guacamoles. There are a lot, which are for some crazy reason. It's avocados. Avocado <laughs> oil will go along with it. And they're going to put in their safflower oil. I've seen it. It's it's stupid. Just read Read the label, it's worth it. It's worth to get into this exercise of reading the label.
2: All right, so now we've taught you how to put what oils to put there. You've got your condiments. Let's talk about what spices seem to be gut friendly. Now there's a lot of spices that are thought to have health benefits, including potential benefits for gut health. These are the ones that I tend to use a whole lot of. Turmeric, everybody's heard of turmeric. This spice, it's a natural anti-inflammatory. It's been shown to have antioxidant properties, and there is some research to show that it may have some benefits for gut health, including reducing inflammation, in people with IBD and IBS. Ginger is another one. This is known for its digestive properties and can help reduce bloating and other issues. It's also a natural anti-inflammatory. Fennel, I don't use a whole lot of fennel, but this spice does have a licorice-like flavor and it actually helps in to aid in digestion. Uh, you'll find this in a lot of Mediterranean restaurants on oh, the way yeah. out. You'll grab some fennel. So it's brilliant when they it's uh, I forgot what that's called, but it's a they use fennel as a base there and it really does help reduce bloating and improve overall digestive function. Uh, coriander and cinnamon are two of those. They both have antioxidants. They both have anti inflammatory properties. Cinnamon has also been shown to have some improvement with glucose control. So the other thing, and we did a whole show on this, I think that mushrooms are underused. Oh, definitely. So having all different kinds of mushrooms available can add texture, can add all kinds of- That's a food of, bulker. It's great. It's a food bulker, and it's great. We did a whole episode on this. Uh, we've had naturopath Mason on who mm-hmm. discussed it and the benefits. Basically, mushrooms are nutrient-rich they're a good source of things like selenium, potassium, vitamin D, and some types of mushrooms such as shiitake and maitake are also very potent anti-inflammatories, and they support the immune system. They also have been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects. So, low-calorie, some-protein fiber, tons of nutrients. You have mushrooms on hand. You just start adding mushrooms to all different kinds of dishes.
1: Didn't Mason even throw out there that, uh, much like, uh, humans that you can, uh, you can sun your mushrooms and they'll actually increase the vitamin D.
2: Yes, this is, yes. He actually discussed this. You can put your mushrooms in the sun and the level of conversion of vitamin D in the mushroom goes up to so like you higher skin. levels, just like your skin. It's wild. Yeah. Now the other thing that I always have nearby in the kitchen, in the pantry, I always have polyphenols nearby. Definitely. Now you just heard Eric, absolutely tell you how inflammatory all this stuff is. We know why polyphenols are such potent anti-inflammatories. So when I talk about polyphenols, a lot of times I don't have to have a whole pantry full of vegetables. I've got Atrantil Pro and I've got Atrantil there. So if I'm not having a colorful dish, I make sure that I take Atrantil Pro or Atrantil with my meals, because it has been shown to improve the microbiome. The microbiome uses polyphenols as a prebiotic that help break down the foods that you eat into potent anti-aging and anti-inflammatory, and most importantly, neuroprotective compounds. So he's showing you graphs that describe the rise in diabetes that also correlates with the rise in dementia. If you put dementia on there, it almost overlaps that whole rise. Now, heart health. Polyphenols such as flavonoids that are in Atron they actually have been shown to help lower the cholesterol. And you said that cholesterol, we discussed it, it's a nuanced thing, but it really helps lower the inflammatory aspect making cholesterol bad. That's That's the key. There are cancer prevention profiles of it that actually have been shown to be protective against certain types of cancer weight management it goes without saying weight management if you're going to stop the inflammation then you're going to help with the weight management so that is my big thing if you don't have time to chop up a bunch of vegetables pick up some atron teal Go to kbmdhealth.com, get AtronTeal Pro where we have the polyphenols plus the spore biotics and pow, you've got that covered. So one of the other things that I just want to close the show with is this. This is exhausting. How do I do this? I'm not the type of person that I can't go to Whole Foods. I can't do whatever. Screw that. You can go to Walmart and here's some strategies on how you can make healthier choices when you're shopping for this stuff. Yep. Step one, plan. Just make a list of the items that you need before you go to the store and stick to it. This will help you avoid those impulse buys where then you start sliding down that uh, inflammatory omega-6 sugar craving slide. Simple thing. Shop the perimeter. The store's perimeter is usually where all the fresh produce, meats, and dairy products are located. These are typically healthier options, way better than the processed foods. The supermarkets are doing the same thing that restaurants are doing. They are a moving product, and they know that the high-margin products that have the longest shelf life are when you walk in, you walk in that first aisle, You pow, you're hit. To actually make an effort to get the perishable goods that are healthier for you, you actually have to walk around the outside to do that. They know that the biggest margin is straight ahead. Read all the labels. And honestly, you start reading labels, you'll literally my kids laugh at me because whenever they like, can we eat this? And I just grab it, I'm two ingredients in and I'm chucking it over my shoulder, yep. going, Nope. Can't do that either. So what does that mean? Why don't you just eat some stuff that doesn't have labels? Yeah. Whole foods. I remember Michael Pollan, when he wrote that, well, he's written multiple books, but I remember when he was talking, he goes, if you want to have an apple pie, you can eat the whole pie as long as you make it from scratch. Yeah. Because you know exactly what's in it. You're controlling it. And a piece of pie that was purchased, processed is way worse for you than the whole damn pie that you made at home where you had every... Simple ingredient, and if using the oils we're talking about and all that,
1: you know what's wild is if you make it yourself and you have a you make it from scratch, etc., the satiety will be achieved theoretically faster with less calories consumed versus eating the highly processed version, which you'll still continue to crave after you've already finished whatever portion that you've already had. They've they've run those. They've run those comparisons where satiety in a whole non-inflammatory diet with the same equivalent of calorie in a highly processed food setting, the highly processed food leaves that particular person craving, still hungry, and wanting more. And the person who just ate the same calorie equivalent of the same food, which was either from scratch or whole, they reach satiety much, much more easily.
2: Yeah. So the moral of this whole podcast is get to cooking 2023 cook with your significant other your spouse your roommates whatever go to the grocery store get some stuff chop it up together put some music on hell crack a bottle of wine yeah you know. Sip a little of those polyphenols while you're doing it. Make it fun because what I have found wearing my Dexcom continuous glucose monitor is every time I eat out, my blood sugar spikes. Every time I cook, it stays stable. Yeah, there's some stuff going on. 100. And I don't blame the restaurants. They have to make you know they have to try to make a living. So
1: no, but but that's that's another thing though. Start supporting the restaurants that have already decided to make that transition. Right, because they exist.
2: I'm gonna you know what I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna go back to. Uh, once again, if you live in Plano, go to Best tie off of uh, Preston near 121 and say hi to Chris. I'm gonna go drop off and say, quit using your shitty oils. I, I don't know if he uses shitty oils or not, but he'll do whatever. Yeah, I said I want no sugar. He's like, for you, no problem. Yeah, I'll just go in and be like, here's my bottle of extra virgin olive oil. Here's my avocado oil. When I come in, I want those oils used, and they'll probably do it. And they'll probably, I mean, I personally feel like we're trying to support. Uh restaurants and stuff, but we should all be heading in the right direction.
1: Definitely. And uh show notes for this particular show uh on on YouTube, Spotify, uh our own website at uh gutcheckproject.com. We'll list good oils, bad oils, make some references to some of the studies that we use to put this whole thing together. That way you can see the evidence for yourself. I mean it's not it's not a rant to make you feel poorly about things that happened before. Ken and I both will readily admit our diets compared to where we were prior to this kind of knowledge was, I mean, it wasn't that good. I mean, we, we had, we had to learn this just like anybody else.
2: That's right. And so we appreciate all the support. Um, if you can go to YouTube and subscribe to the channel, that helps a ton for the first, uh, 100 subscribers, I will send you an AI diarrhea detection unit.
1: That's a sell if I ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you, it, you know what you know what you it consists of is Ken hanging out in your bathroom telling you what's wrong with your butt. <laughs> call him. Hey Mike, this is Mike from Alabama. You got diarrhea. He's yeah. like, yeah, hey, no shit. I know that. All right? all right. Just just let you know. Yeah. The AI <laughs> is you 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 call Ken while you're going to the yeah. bathroom.
2: If this makes no sense to you, listen to the first five minutes of the show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's probably gonna do it for episode number ninety-six. Thank y'all so much for tuning in to the Gut Check Project. Um we'll just keep on rolling
2: yeah take it make it a good 2023 everyone
0: That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.